Hello, Linux Journal readers. I'm Catherine Druckmann. I'm talking to our editor-in-chief, Doc Searles, and Reuven Lerner, our one of our senior columnists and all-around cool guy who you <laughs> may know. You know, it's true. Don't laugh. Don't laugh. Don't be modest. You're super awesome. And you may know Reuven from his columns. A lot of them are about web development, uh, a lot of really good database stuff, uh, Python, Anyway, so Reuven, why don't you first thank you for talking to us today. Um, sure, sure. My pleasure. You tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you do. So I've been a self-employed uh, consultant since about 1995. Um, and I've sort of switched a little bit what I've done through the years. It's always been using open source software to work with companies and organizations. And it's been some combination of development and consulting and training. And I would say in the last 10 years or so, maybe a little less, um, I've been concentrating, spending most of my time doing training. And more and more of that has been doing Python training. So just about every day of every week of every month, um, I go to a different city, different company, different country, and train either their engineers or their non-engineers in some version of Python, whether it's people who have never programmed before or people who want to really drill down into the more advanced parts of the language. Um, and I feel like I've just got one of the coolest jobs out there because I get to meet really smart people every day and answer or try to answer their interesting questions and help them like have a better career and help them move their company further ahead. So I, I really have fun. I think that's that's so. First of all, it's so valuable. I mean, no wonder you're so busy. Um, I think a lot of our readers are coming to Linux Journal looking for that kind of information. Really, they're they're looking to they're either learning to learn you know a new trick or expose themselves to you know a new language or or um, you know new uh, new skills. And I wondered if, if maybe you could talk a little bit about your feelings on how to get started when you're, you know, maybe you're an experienced programmer and you want to get into a new language, or maybe you're not even at all an experienced programmer and you want to start learning by starting uh, to learn Python. Um, what are your thoughts on that? So something I've been saying more and more over the last few years is that learning a programming language is like learning a language, like a, a spoken language or written language, which means that, first of all, um, it's infinitely deep. It will take you forever to learn everything because we can't ever learn everything. There's always new interesting stuff to learn. Um, and it requires practice and it requires time. Um, so all these people who say, oh, you know, I will, you know, all these people who, who sort of advertise, you will be a Python expert within three days or within five days, you can get going, but it'll take time and effort. But the effort is worthwhile because then you can, tell your computer what to do, and it'll actually do it, um, which is an amazing feeling even to those of us who've been doing for a long, long time. So, you know, f there are all these different programming languages out there. And for a long time, one of the, the big important things was making sure the program ran quickly, right? I remember some of my co uh, college courses would talk about, well, let's make sure this runs really fast. And the problem nowadays is not programs running quickly. The problem is maintaining that software. The problem is debugging that software. And so over the years, our priorities have changed a bit. And I'm not saying that all software should be written in high level, relatively slow executing languages like Python. But 
for a very large number of problems, um, the people are the most important part, right? So I say that people, uh, like Python is sort of well poised for a world in which people are expensive and computers are cheap. And in a world like ours now, well, that's exactly what we've got, where finding good developers is really hard and maintaining software and debugging software is really hard. But if I have to fire up a few extra VMs, I can do that trivially easily and cheaply. Um, and so Python is readable, easy to learn, easy to understand. Um, it has what we call low floors, low thresholds, but also has very high ceilings. You can create very large, very complex systems with it. And so over the last few years, we've seen this um, sort of sea change in Python in that it's no longer just being used within a few communities like web developers and system administrators. It's being used in lots and lots of introductory university courses to teach people intro programming. And it's being used all the way up to very large, like the companies where I train, like Fortune 100 companies, where they have crazy numbers of servers running Python, testing their hardware, testing their software, testing their networks, because again, firing up some more VMs is cheap, but they want to be able to get the most out of their people. It's interesting. Um, not at all surprising, really. <laughs> so, so something that you mentioned, um, and I think it has been a popular topic actually that you, you've written about is testing, using, using Python for, for writing uh, testing. And um, I'm wondering, is that something that you, you get a lot, there's a lot of demand for in terms of, uh, of your training? Are you teaching a lot of people how to, I mean, is that, I would, I would guess that that might be the bulk of what people are, are getting you to do, but I could be wrong. I'm, I'm curious. So, um, so my background is as a, a web developer. Like I started doing that in early 93. Um, and so I was convinced that the people who are going to be hiring me to teach Python want to do a ton of web development. And I could not have been more wrong. <laughs> Basically, I would say easily half the people in my courses are indeed doing software testing. But I want to point out, that's not Python testing, right? So they are testing hardware, they are testing software, sure, they're sure. testing networks. So they're, they're, right, they're, they're using Python to test stuff. So I have a huge number of people who are like writing some crazy number of functions every week where, you know, it's to test this circuit and that circuit. Um, so I'm not really teaching them how to do that kind of testing because I don't okay. know their ah, hardware okay. software networks. But but increasingly, I've been getting interested in testing Python code um, using a system called PyTest. Ah, and, there, okay, yes. and so that's not for testing other stuff. That's for testing sure, your Python. Sure, code. Yeah, testing and code. I've discovered, like, as I started talking to my students about this, well, yes, they actually have to test their tests. Right. So it sort of like gives you a bit of a headache to think about <laughs> it. But, you know, they're writing tests in Python to check hardware, but they the need to check make sure those <laughs> tests are working correctly. So they write tests for their tests so they'll know things are working. Right. OK, <laughs> well, that's interesting. So uh, so I do re I do remember, actually, that you've you've had a few posts recently about actually testing testing your Python code rather than, you know, using it for writing test scripts and whatnot. So. So people have been responding to that, I think, too, as well. Have, have they not? I actually, I feel like I should know a little bit more. But <laughs> so, so tell me. So yeah, the answer is yes. <laughs> excellent. Good news. Good, news. <laughs> good, good guess. Um, good guess. So, so I'm curious about that then, too. Um, what, what sort of, what got you on this article series? So I have talked a good game for many years about software testing. Um, and when working on projects, I've tried to convince my clients to do the testing and about a third of the time they've agreed to it. And so I've done the testing 
And I I was always in that camp of like, wow, testing is such a chore and how annoying. And I knew like in my heart of hearts that it was the right thing to do. And I knew that it was just like such a pain. Um, and when my clients, and again, it was like two thirds of them would say, no, 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 we don't need to do testing. I'd be like, okay, that's fine. Um, and so what actually changed things for me was I was at uh, PyCon, the International Python Conference in May of 2018. Um, and I met Brian Oaken, who's like one of the head PyTest people, and he wrote a book on it. Um, and I, I mentioned something about it, and he mentioned something about PyTest. He said, listen, it, it, like, you should just try PyTest. It will change things for you. It really will. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Another, you know, an, another open source fanatic for his software. And um, the thing is, he's right. PyTest makes it so ridiculously, trivially easy to test your code um, that it's become sort of addictive for me. Um, and a big place, I mean, I do training not only on site with companies, but I do online training as well, including a lot of sort of helping people practice and improve their Python. Um, and so I've integrated PyTest into my teaching there. And it has been remarkable how much better it is to provide people with tests that they can run their code against rather than just trying to describe it as a, a like, you know, a specification in text. Because no matter what my spec would say, I would still miss something or get it wrong. And the tests allow people to say, okay, I know my code is working. Or even better, I have some people in my courses who say, wait, your tests missed this or they missed that. So I have really had quite the testing revelation over the last, say, six to eight months, and um, very pleasantly so. That's cool. So to kind of take a little bit of a turn, um, there was something that you wrote for Linux Journal. One, it was a while ago, um, maybe within the last year, maybe not quite. Uh, actually, I'm looking it up right now. Um, you wrote an article about the title was how to take the plunge and replace the I'm not a programmer mantra and I that kind of resonated with me and I wanted to talk to you just a little bit about that and I I think I think a lot of people who who are in fact using writing a lot of code in their day-to-day -day lives and their jobs and whatnot don't identify as a programmer and I wondered if you could speak to that a little bit yeah so I I was I was sort of introduced to this when I was in graduate school, where people would talk to me about uh, sort of this attitude they encountered of, well, I'm not a programmer. Um, and I was like, okay, well, I can sort of understand some of these, you know, accountants and teachers and other people saying that. But then I discovered there were lots of, you know, network and system administrators who also had that opinion of themselves. And I'm thinking, that's kind of weird. Like, they're running shell scripts, which are programs, and they're running these complex systems, which are programs. And so I think about half of it was attitude, um, and um, which which came from taking bad classes, learning really hard languages, trying to sort of bite off more than they could chew in, in one sitting. And half of it was because I think they were setting these very, very lofty goals of what they, they you know, thought of as programmers. So, um, and I encountered this a lot, uh, especially one of my clients where I would teach my intro Python course. And after the first day, some people would come up to me afterwards and say, well, this was great, but whoa, it was way too much. You know, I'm not a programmer. And after I got this a whole bunch of times, I said, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna offer a course called Python for non-programmers. And it is a ton of people who are, you know, assistant network administrators or managers who took an intro CS course in college who like got some very, very basic exposure to it, but they never connected all the dots. 
And the, the joy and glee they get from discovering, yes, I can actually do that is phenomenal because suddenly they realize, oh, it's just a matter of organizing my thoughts and organizing my data with certain structures and then putting that together into functions. And what do you know? I can actually do some useful things and it's going to take way less code, say, than a bash script would and it'll be more maintainable and I can build on this ad infinitum. Um, so if someone has no experience, absolutely positively zero experience programming, again, it takes time. It's like, imagine trying to learn a foreign language when you never knew what, you know, without knowing what nouns, verbs, and adjectives are. That's a tall order, but it's possible. It just takes time. But if you have done anything, if you've gotten any exposure to it, oh, I understand what a function is sort of kind of, I understand what a variable is sort of kind of, then you can slowly but surely wade into those waters. And if you have it at a gentle enough slope, you will build up both some familiarity with the concepts and the self-confidence you need to say, yeah, I can actually do this. What do you know? I am a programmer. Um, and it's, it's uh, I have to say, like teaching that course is one of the, the like great fun for me because I see the people evolve from I'm not a programmer on day one to what do you know I am on day four. I think one of the uh, one of the things you're pointing to there to me is one of the things we're going to get over when we leave the industrial age into the post-industrial age. During the industrial age, we were taught you are your label, you know, and we're taught that in school too. You know, I have to major in this. I'm going to take that. And then I become an expert in that, or I, I get credentialed in some way. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think we're moving past that. And I, anyway, it's a good sign of that. And it's an excuse for me to jump in for a second. No, I think Excellent. that's that's great. I mean, everybody has their their own little identity crisis within, you know, whatever they do in life. You, you're going to face some identity crisis, crises, uh, I feel like. I mean, unless you're superhuman. But um, Look, there, there's some people also who see... Um, programming as a, a new essential literacy, as important as reading and writing and mathematics. And I'm not convinced I'd go that far, but I would say that even if you can get some basic understanding of programming in some simple way, that'll allow you to, to like control your computer more. And computers are everywhere, right? Like they're, they're in front of us, they're in our pockets, they're, they're control. And, and so just that understanding of how they work can help you to appreciate, understand, and get a little less frustrated with the world we're in, as well as automate some of the drudgery you have to deal with in your own lives. So I, I see it as like, you don't have to be a programmer to know some programming. Yeah, that's I, a really I, good, yeah. Yeah, I, I was going to ask, Ruben, how much do you deal with kids, if at all, in your, in your work? <laughs> so um, I actually just started talking to a company that does children's education to try to put together a Python curriculum for them. Um, but again, I, I used to teach kids a lot, um, like back when I was like in my early 20s. And then I have a 16-year-old who actually has learned Python over the last year. And so I've, I've seen it through her eyes and have learned a lot through what she's learned, in, like good and bad. We have we have a kids issue coming up that we're facing a deadline this week, but the podcast will still be up through that. So for whatever that's worth. Uh, look, I'll I'll tell you. So my my 16 year old who learned Python like that was her first language, and then she's learning C sharp in school. Uh, Israeli high schools have majors, um, and so she's majoring in computer science. She keeps telling me saying, "Oh, what a stupid language! You have to declare variables." And I say, "I know, I know. Like you know, part of education is understanding hardship." Uh, but <laughs> but like, I mean, but but it's it's interesting that already at this age she's gained a perspective of how different languages work. 
um, which is, I think, very useful. And her, and it has nothing to do with me. It has to do with the program she's in that she's learning it in. But her preference is definitely these easier to work with, perhaps slower executing, but higher level languages that that are closer to people. They f they force the computer to work harder rather than the person to work harder and be close to the computer. And understanding that difference, I think, is important too. Mm -hmm. uh, if if that's part of her uh, her education there. So Absolutely. an interesting thing that you said, you know, learning to control the device, and I would I would sort of extend that a bit and possibly segue into something that I think Doc might want to talk about is <laughs> controlling the devices before they control you. <laughs> but you know, like getting a basic competency, you know, to be able to manipulate the uh, digital world around you, I think is possibly useful. But before we get into that manipulating the digital world, I wondered if you could name a few really good resources for for uh, people looking to start learning Python. Because, I mean, aside from your newsletter, correct? You do right. <laughs> right. I mean, I've got a newsletter. Well, the obvious place to start would be your right. newsletter. Right. Like, obviously, my ego comes first. Um, yes. But, um, well, first of all, for kids, there's actually a book called Python for Kids. Um, and one of the smart things he does in that book is something that took me a while to realize you have to do with kids, which is make it visual, right? Like, so I was just telling uh, that this, um, like, kids uh, education company I was talking to last week. Um, so they asked me, so what's the first, ex one of the first exercises you do with your adults? I said, well, it's, you know, create a name triangle where first, you know, ask the person their name and print the whole name, then the whole name minus one letter, then the whole name minus two letters until you end up with one letter and then nothing. And adults are like, oh, that is so cool. And kids basically are snoring by the time they get to halfway through that, uh, um, you know, that triangle. They need graphics, they need sound, they need things that look cool. And so Python for Kids tries as quickly as possible to get there so that it can be interesting and interactive as well. Um, so if, if, if you are a kid or a kid at heart, that's not a bad book to look at at all. Uh, there's another book called um, Automate the Boring Stuff. Um, oh, I wish I could remember the author's name, but he's really amazing, which is like a gentle introduction to Python for people who say, well, I have like, what can I do with it on my computer? Um, and then you also have uh, Zed Shaw. He has this great uh, course called Learn Python the Hard Way, where basically he's like, you know, a, 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 a nasty boot camp um, uh, instructor where he says, look, the only way you're going to get through this is if you, you know, do a whole bunch of exercises. Um, and the idea is that through the exercises, little by little by little, you understand things um, a little better. There's also a site, um, which I, I'm just going to check here, um, called, there was a site called CodeMonkey. Yep, yep, it looks like it's still around at playcodemonkey.com. And that's, they don't use any language that I know of. I think they might even be using CoffeeScript or something. Um, and they basically have this cute animated system that you have to write code to move forward one little piece at a time. And the point is not to learn a particular language. The point is to learn concepts. What are variables? What are types? What are loops? Um, and it might be aimed at kids, but again, it gets pretty sophisticated pretty quickly. And I was very impressed by everything I saw there. Thank you so much. And how can people sign up for your Python newsletter? So they can go to uh, my website, learner.co.il uh, slash newsletter, and they can sign up there. Fantastic. So um, back to this idea about uh, <laughs> the digital world and becoming uh, competent enough to survive it. Um, Doc, I wondered uh, if you could talk to us a little bit about 
today being privacy yeah. day. So, yeah, so um, it's sort of interesting how these things go. The uh, uh, Some treaty with a very long name was signed in Strasbourg in 1981 having to do with protecting data privacy for individuals. It was very prescient considering that none of the ancestors of today's PCs were even in the world in 1981. The IBM PC, which is the architecture most Linux runs on, was still a year away. Um, And so it wasn't until 2007 that uh, in Europe they decided to make today um, in commemoration of that other day in 1981, uh, Data Protection Day. And in the U.S., two years later, we made a Data Privacy Day with a unanimous vote in the U.S. Congress and then absolutely nothing coming out of it other than we called it a day. Um, but right now it's especially relevant because there are two books and two books out, one of which I reviewed last summer in a piece called Engineers versus Reengineering uh, by Brett Fishman and, and Evan Selinger. Uh, called um, re-engineering humanity, and one of the points of it is that we're using computers to to hack people at this point. And by we, I mean Google and Facebook and the entire advertising complex, um, which is so drunk on personal data. And the principle in um, computing that says what can be done will be done until we find out what's wrong with it. And we're kind of at that point right now um, with uh, with surveillance of people. Um, and that's caused the GDPR to happen in Europe and uh, a privacy law to happen in California. Um, but both those things are laws that got ahead of the tech. And we didn't develop the tech. By we, I mean all the programmers of the world. Um, we're too slow to equip individuals with the equivalent of clothing and shelter. Um, we have onion routing and we have ways to stop tracking. And if you're a wizard and not a muggle, you may know how to protect yourself to some degree online. But for the most part, being online is a hostile place uh, for most people, but they're not aware of how dangerous it really is because they don't see the harms that are being done, but feel it kind of in their bones that they know that they're being spied on more or less all the time. And a new book just came out, and it'll still be new when this podcast goes up, by Shoshana Shoshana Zuboff, um, uh, who's a uh, uh, retired Harvard uh, business professor um, and a brilliant writer uh, called uh, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. It's 688 pages long, and one of the blurbs on the back cover that flatters the book is mine. Um, I highly recommend it, but I also highly recommend the other book because the other book ends with, with, uh, this is re-engineering, uh, humanity ends with the recommendation that we work on equipping you and me, uh, equipping the users of the world who are not merely users uh, with with tools that give us both independence and agency and sovereignty and the ability to assert our will, uh, for example, by uh, proffering terms that others will agree to rather than always agreeing to others' terms. And there's a bit of a you know a fight right now going on between it's not even a fight. We're losing. Um, between everybody that wants to talk about how big and bad Google and Facebook are um, on the one hand and the people saying the only solution to that is more laws, which on the other hand, like the GDPR, reduce us merely to data subjects who, who need a fiduciary in order to operate. We can't be programmers. We can't, we can't be, we don't have root. We need root. And um, all the laws assume right now that you don't have root and 
you are a dependent variable, not an independent one. And and something I'd like to get your thoughts on this, Ruben, because you know something has happened, and um, Kyle Rankin has talked about this. Um, uh, uh, some others did, uh, including me, at, at the Freenode conference last summer. Uh, that the new generation, not even the new generation, that the generation that was really fully mindful that they were really making the world with open source and free software before that, that that's all a lot of building material that's in the world now, but there's not as much consciousness about the need to not only respect the fact that the world runs on free software and open source at this point, but that we need to keep making it and we need to keep keep it free and keep it open and make uh, code bases and come up with standards that... Um, allow us to run our own platforms, as it were. And so um, so I see sort of two things that are, are worth discussing here. One is, how can we start getting code developed that really does increase our personal agency? And not just for the wizards of the world who are listening to this podcast, but to the muggles as well, um, which is most of us. And uh, And the other is, how can we raise consciousness about how important it is to make free and open code and not just platforms that trap people. Yeah, you know, it, it took me a long time to be convinced that this was a problem. Um, and I, if it took me a long time, I, I mean, I was always like, okay, well, you know, we'll just have our open source code and everything will be fine. And it took me a long, long time to realize that, wait a second, if the companies that are using this code are then sort of blocking it off and putting it on their servers and not making it available and forking it and God knows what, then that's not good for society. And in addition to that, like, yes, they have a lot of data about a lot of us and they're not sharing what they have and what they're doing with it. Um, and it would seem to me in many ways that it's the open source developers who are even aware of this. I mean, I think of my kids, I think of my you know, non-technical colleagues at the companies I work with. How many people really think about it? I mean, how many millions of people use Facebook, Twitter, uh, Snapchat, uh, Instagram, all these things, sharing stuff, and they don't think at all about who they're giving permission to and what they're giving permission to. And then, of course, you have these scares. I mean, I just saw it a few days ago uh, online where someone was saying, I think it was on Facebook, uh, if you don't want to give them permission to use your photos, then you should do X and Y and Z. So when you dangle it in front of people that there are issues here, all of a sudden they get scared. But 99% of the people, 99% of the time, don't think about it. Um, I don't think it's – I think laws are important and useful. Um, and I think having the software be open source is important and useful, but neither of these is going to be sufficient. What you need to have is people – aware of it and demand it. I mean, you can, you have to imagine that if a hundred million people tomorrow quit Facebook saying, we don't want to use this anymore until you stop tracking us, you better believe that they would wake up and, and change how they do things. But they have no interest in doing that because it's making them money. So I don't think there's any one dramatic thing that can happen. It's going to have to be a societal change. And that will be some combination of awareness and software and laws slowly but surely moving in that direction. So, so the case that um, we've been making uh, in Linux Journal, to the, which is to say mostly I, because we have a staff of few, um, <laughs> but we're in agreement on this, I believe anyway, is that um, 
it's really not chicken and egg in which comes first. You really need the code first, or you, you can't prove this stuff out without code. And um, I, I, Larry Lessig wrote Code is Law back in the late 90s and then updated it with uh, another book that pretty much made the same point but expanded on it. Um, and and I, a metaphor occurred to me that I think might be useful, which is that the, the world we're in right now in respect to open source code because open source code is so massively used and it's kind of a, a substrate it's not just a substrate it is it is the the iron ore and the coal and the oil and and the you know the natural the natural building material you know i mean you've probably heard about paul bunyan the, you know the, this that there was this myth of paul bunyan the giant guy who had a giant ox and he went around and and he was the great lumber. He was the great lumberjack. And it was actually a PR campaign um, back in the maybe even late two centuries ago that encouraged the development of the American Midwest and West by basically denuding the entire landscape of all of the timber so that the lumber industry could uh, thrive and bring railroads through there. And lumber was a natural resource. And and Linux is lumber. Linux is two by fours and it's frame construction and um, and you know and all that stuff is good, but people take it for granted. The difference with open source versus say oil or coal is that it doesn't take millions of years in the case of coal or oil, or dozens of years or or, or years even in, in, in the case of um, of trees that you would cut down, but you can make it this afternoon. Um, you know, it is possible to generate more code that's useful to everybody. Um, so that's a, and as in other words, the, the wonderful thing about open source is you can make your own natural resource that everybody can use. And it, it, a problem that we have for, with this Facebooks of the world and the Googles and the Amazons of the world is that it's easier to make a platform for a private interest and to lock people into it than it is to imagine uh, a code base that that works for everybody and where lots of Amazons and Facebooks and Googles can thrive and will have a larger net outcome of all of those activities than we'll have in a private controlled environment like we now have, for example, less so with Facebook than we do with Amazon. Um, Amazon has eaten an awful lot of retail. It's eaten... Um, it's eaten the cloud business to a large degree. Um, it's eaten. It's uh, it's eaten freight forwarding. It's eating freight forwarding right now, and and I think there are probably ways of thinking outside the box of I can get funding to make yet another platform and I can trap people into it um, in in a larger environment that says, wait a minute, I can enlarge the entire retail sector by doing something with open source. I can enlarge the entire freight forwarding sector, the railroad sector, the the cloud sector, the you name it sector, by imagining something that works for everybody. Um, I think Doug Cutting did that with search. Uh, it, he did it with, um, uh, oh, um, Hadoop, okay? I mean, think of the the positive uplift for many, many companies in that. And he did it for altruistic reasons, and he's done well himself in the process. Linus did that in the first place. But it's very, I, I've, having been around this so long, it's still amazing to me that people 
for the most part, don't see the benefit of doing something for everybody. The benefit to every, anybody of doing something for everybody is still not obvious. That the first answer to so many economic and political and other questions is what I do for myself or for my small cabal is the best thing to do. And and so, and, and I don't know how to break that cycle or even if it can be broken. It, it's just that I know which side we're on with that. And we're on the side of everybody rather than the narrow interest that can benefit just a few. So I'm wondering, Reuven, so it's something that Doc and I have talked about with, with other people and Oh, I don't know, losing touch with their open source roots. I wondered if, if you're seeing the same thing. Like I, I see a little bit of increasing cynicism about larger companies benefiting from the little guy's code, you know, that you, and people are starting to, there's a little bit of pushback and resentment and, and whatnot from some open source contributors. I don't think it's, it's not new, but I just, I feel like I see it more frequently. And I'm wondering if, if you see the same things. Um, I don't know. I mean, I see first, first of all, I, I don't think any of us expected 20 some odd years ago, um, you know, when open source started to really come into the public eye, that it would be as, or at least certainly I, I should say, I didn't expect that it would be so pervasive in the computer world. Um, I mean, sure, I'd been using all sorts of things and I knew that the internet was based on lots of open source code, but I didn't expect that so many companies would want experts in open source and there'd be so many libraries and so many everything you can do and so in a sense we've sort of won in that we're there and people sort of take it for granted now and people have forgotten that it you know open source doesn't just mean oh it's free of charge i can download and use it but that you are really trying to help others and, and work with others. And so you still have, you know, when, when I go talk to other open source developers, these are the people who are most still fired up about it. And I don't think they're cynical or upset. I think they're generally happy that they've you know, managed to make it, as it were, and many of them are able to have careers with it. Um, I, I, I don't know if I've really asked the question, though, and now I'm definitely going to when I talk to people, of what do you think about where things stand? Um, but, you know, you do have, you know, you did have certainly with the whole GPL, um, three and I forget what it's called now. I'm blanking, of course, at the right moment, but the whole, the, the, the paragraph that allowed you to the clause that the Afero clause, I think it's called that made it so that even if you put things behind a server, um, and made a SaaS system out of it, you still need to share your code. I remember people debating that furiously. And part of me has to wonder what would have happened if that had become the norm. Because on the one hand, maybe lots of companies would have used open source. On the other hand, um, maybe it would have guaranteed that more stuff was available. Because what we see now is definitely lots of companies taking open source, using it, and not sharing it, or only sharing a small part of what they're doing. And I have to assume that is frustrating for people, even if they say, oh, I'm happy that everyone's using my code. Like they do want to make it available to everyone, and they probably I have to assume it gives them a bad taste in their mouths to know that people are using and making lots of money from their code and not giving back to the community that spawned it. I, I think a key there from the start is that it has to be our code and not my code, whoever I am. I mean, think about how even though it's not a credible statement when Linus says uh, Linux can get along without me. Uh, he said that from the start, you know, that it's not about him. Uh, it's about 
you know, it's, it's about everybody. It's about what it does for everybody. Um, I, you know, I know, you know, there was a great story that Andrew Morton, uh, an alpha maintainer for many years now, but when he was still new, uh, told me, um, that at, at all times, you know, that no, no company can that, that pays, you know, like an IBM or a Red Hat or a, an SAP or an Oracle that, that pays a, a, a Linux, um, maintainer, um, can tell them what to do because whatever they contribute to the kernel has to be for the good of the kernel and for all of its users and not just for one corporate interest. And that, uh, and Dan Fry with IBM told me it took them IBM six years before they realized that they couldn't tell their kernel hackers what to do, but that it, in fa- it was in fact the other way around. And there's a sensibility there, which is, it's, it is, it's a collective sensibility, but it's not in the sense that we're a union or, you know, some sort of communist idea, but rather that there's so much more leverage for everybody when you're working for everybody and it's not yours alone um, than there is when you're doing it for yourself alone. But that the collateral benefit of that is, you know what, you don't even know what the outcome of this is going to be, but your market value is going to be higher because you give this away and you're doing it with other people. Yeah, I mean, I think think it was IBM that took a big plunge into Linux probably close to 20 years ago. And they said, look, we want to be a service business and we want to help people with this. And my impression is it grew pretty reasonably and to such a degree that they just bought Red Hat a a number of months ago. Um, And I'm going to assume that they are going to keep Red Hat open source and they're going to keep its model and just expand it. Um, And in that sense, that's good. I mean, because that that is open. So so an interesting thing about that um, is that there were. I'll try to make this very short uh, that but there were two successive Linux worlds. And this is when Linux is like the late 90s um, and the very latest 90s when it may have even been in 2000. Um, at one of them, IBM was just sort of testing the waters with Linux and they only had it on under their web sphere web uh, server. Um, and there were guys in black shoes and white shirts and it looked very corporate and uh, and the next one, they had like beanbags everywhere and Ethernet cables all over the floor. Wi-Fi wasn't a thing yet. And lots of geeks laying around on these things like 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 seals on rocks around a dock um, all plugged in. And, and I, you know, and I had a meeting now this time with like a big coterie of people. And I asked, I, you know, the IBM people, what happened? And this is actually before they made the decision to do a big PR push saying, we just put we're going to put two billion dollars into Linux, which. They never really accounted for, never really explained, uh, and it didn't mean anything. But, but it was great PR. And they said, well, what happened was that we surveyed our, our own engineers and found that um, an enormous number of them were already hacking on the Linux kernel. They already had a number of maintainers employed by them. I think Ted Show was one of them at that time. Still is, maybe. I don't know. But in any case, they, um, and then somebody else, um, maybe it's John Terpstra. Um, uh, told me that they had no less than like 13 million Samba servers within IBM itself. I mean, like all the old Windows wow. Windows boxes were being repurposed as file and print servers using Samba or something like that. And and that's, in other words, what happened with IBM is it really went into compliance with its own engineers. And I think something very much like that happened at Microsoft. And that's one of the reasons why Microsoft followed um 
IBM on that path and joined the Linux Foundation and the rest of it. I mean, Bing, for example, as I understand it anyway, runs on Linux and has run on Linux from the start. Um, and again, because there's this free building material that's laying around. Why why roll your own when it's already rolled, right? And and I think that's that's part of one of the, you know the reason that Linux has been as successful as it is because it's you know this stuff's laying around in the world. I'm wondering if y'all have any final thoughts on on any of these things that we've talked I, about, whether it be learning learning programming languages or Privacy Day or any of these great things. I I have a, a final thought, but it's not really you know it, it's just an interesting one, which is that. Um, you know, Reuven, you're in Israel. I'm in California, and Catherine's in Houston, I think. And it just doesn't matter, <laughs> except that you're going to bed and I'm going to lunch, <laughs> <You know? laughs> and Catherine's going to dinner or something. Is soon enough, uh, or a late afternoon snack? And that's that's you know, and that's because there's something open and free underneath all of this. I mean, if if the internet had had been jobbed out to the phone company we'd be looking at what we're paying for this and we're not, we're not because TCP IP is under this and all the networks in the world agreed to salute the Trojan horse that came in from a bunch of physicists and, and, you know, geeks they didn't understand. And they said, okay, and now we have the internet and that's just, that's just freaking amazing, you know, but we take it for granted, you know, the, you know, the progress is the process by which the miraculous becomes mundane, and and it couldn't be more mundane at this point. Uh, so that's that's just deeply interesting to me. How, you know, having been on Earth for a long time, how normal it is. I mean, if if you watch Blade Runner, it, you know, which which is set in 2019. You know, I mean, if you watch Blade Runner, it's it, that's supposed to be 2019. I'm in Los Angeles right now. It doesn't look like that. <laughs> you <know>? But, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, and Harrison Ford uh, playing this guy, Deckard, you know, he's using pay phones and he's using, you know, video display terminals that are, you know, g- green phosphors on an, you know, 80 by 25 screen, you know, and, and, and yet, um, you know, now we, you know, they have zero gravity cars. But instead, we're, you know, we're all zero distance apart in a in a space that is just as miraculous and actually less predictable than anything that was in in Blade Runner, because it's, you know, it's it's, you know, we live in a world that is miraculous compared not only to, you know, 1981 or whenever it was that that movie was shot, but compared to that vision of the future that's supposed to be now. And the world isn't that bad off either. (laughs) So. So it's it's sort of interesting to watch that and see everything they got wrong. It is, and I, I think um, you know it's a great miracle that that it is that that we um, have all these opportunities and, and abilities to connect with each other. I think as long as we just you know take the care with it, and like we've said, don't you know try to try to remember our roots and try to remember where it came from and what created it. And if we continue to care for that ecosystem, I think. Um, I don't know. I hope it continues <laughs> to be pos- a positive oh, thing. Yeah, the, the horse is out of the barn. It's done. We're, you know, we've even if you know with China locking everything down, and even if we get a lot of national boundaries or international boundaries back up, and um, I think the experience of being zero distance apart um, is not one that's going to go away. 
I think it's done. And so that's, we're digital animals now and not just physical ones. And that's really strange and interesting. Any final thoughts on that, Ruven? Oh boy. Well, the moment you mentioned China, like I go there all the time and I have lots and lots of thoughts. Um, I would say it, it is in a very small nutshell, you are right. You, you are right. But um, the potential for governments to um, pick and choose how we use the internet is uh, has surprised me in how easily they can pull it off. Um, and so, yeah, I can talk to my friends in China like very easily using the internet, and it's fantastic. And it's as if you know I'm talking to them in the next room. Great, but. Um, you know, the way that their system works there is there is a lot of fine grain control on content and who can talk to whom and how using what protocols. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, and I, I again, like I, I think this entire podcast is all about where I was wrong, but I was sure that this would never be possible because, right, you know, the Internet routes around censorship and all, yeah. all such things. And, and uh, governments yeah, except, are dumb and all that stuff. Yeah, right. But, but, but it turns not. out with enough people, enough money and enough uh, uh, intent. They can do it. I don't think it's a, a worry for us, uh, you know, in uh, um, you know, open Western democratic countries. Uh, but it shows that it's it's not um, it's not to be taken for granted, and that keeping as many of these things open as possible is uh, is important to keep in mind. Wonderful. Well, here's to not taking it for granted. Yay. <laughs> Yay. Okay. Thanks, y'all. I think we're great. <laughs> <laughs>